1: That's Stamps.com. Code program.
2: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
3: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Herson. Discuss what the suspected deployment of Russian barrier troops, that's troops from your own side that shoot you if you run away, means for Russia's fighting ability and morale. And I interview Eugene Slavny, a lieutenant in the armed forces of Ukraine. Eugene was a journalist and media professional for many years and, at the outbreak of Russia's full-scale invasion, joined the armed forces.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can
0: win. Ukraine must win and Ukraine will win.
1: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
3: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 4th of November, day 254, and today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest from Hazan.
4: Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, on. not a huge amount of movement there. The line's still not rapidly moving as we saw in Kharkiv a couple of months ago, but uh, inexorable progress from Ukraine pushing down the line of the river towards the city. Um, equally, it's looking like Russia is going to move out of the city Um, planning seems to be pretty well advanced for that we think they've either got airborne troops vdv russian airborne troops and other sort of good quality troops in there or they've been moved in which possibly so either they've been moved in or they are there anyway, but they they've been identified on the ground, and this is thought to be their their role is thought to be to kind of hold the line as as others as others, others move out. Um, I mean, a large proportion of the civilian population has already has already moved out. We 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 think Russia will either. Well, it took some de- the decision some time ago to bolster the forces there to cover that um, that withdrawal, which they will call, they will call an evacuation or something, but they you know, they won't say a retreat. They'll they'll spin it somehow. Um, they've also been building up. Russia's been building up a defensive line on the other side of the river. So the so the left bank, the south side of the of the. Dnipro river there so building up heavy defensive lines um and pushing in other mobilized troops from 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 russia some of the recently mobilized soldiers to staff those lines there so all the conditions look like they are they are being set for a withdrawal as we mentioned yesterday flags have started to come down from the main sort of uh, power buildings the administrative buildings of the of the um the establishment there um Although there are still there are still Russian flags on on other buildings, but it all looks like russia is is prepared to give up the city, move to the south side of the river, and then the combination of a, a very wide river and the and the the defensive line that they are building will probably in all likelihood mean that even if and when Ukraine take the rest of that that slice of the hezon um, oblast and the city itself they're probably not. It would be too fanciful to think. Right, they're just going to springboard straight to the south, threaten Crimea. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they will be, um, they will probably take what they what they can from the from the area that, that Russia has got north and west of the Dnieper River. Uh, I think that's probably going to be it for the winter. Now, Lloyd Austin, a U.S. Secretary of Defense, was asked last night about this at the Pentagon, and uh, and he he said that there's no there's no doubt in his mind that Russia, uh, oh, cracky that Ukraine are going to be able to. Uh, take back that area of, of Hezón and take back the city. So he, he was very, uh, very forceful on that. And today there's been reporting that, that Vladimir Putin has, has prioritized uh, moving civilians out because, um, uh, you know, they shouldn't be subjected to artillery and yada, yada, yada. I mean, forget forget what he says. The the, the reason he said it is because all these the conditions seem to be uh, being placed for for this uh, for this withdrawal, which does, as I said before, make make complete military sense. We think the commanding elements of the Russian forces in that area moved over the river some time ago, um, and there was just the 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 other the, the forces basically just holding the line. Russia wanted to hold Hezon city for its symbolism, the only kind of regional capital to fall, the first big city to fall to Russia. And if they had if they if they still have any aspirations to try and move along the south coast of Ukraine through Mikholaiv, uh through to Odessa, then um, then they obviously have to hold on to on to heads on. That now looks like an utter pipe dream. Um, the question now is, is how they get out in good order and at what point the military sense is able to uh, impact pu- uh, Putin's political judgment that uh, that losing this area, given the, uh, the you know, relatively light, but but. It's definitely there, the internal strife that's being reported, how, how this will be played out again. I mean, as and when Russia does move out, we, we should expect to see um, increased domestic criticism of of, of the leadership. Um, I mean, Putin has been, he's had, to, he's had to throw a little sop to his, to the right wing, to the ultra-nationalists, hence one of the reasons we think they've, they shifted to this uh, strategy of attacking national infrastructure. Um, he's able to at the moment to successfully deflect battlefield reversals onto his military, sacking all the generals rather than taking any of it, any of it himself. But I mean, this will this will be a biggie as and when it comes. Hence, I think all this signaling up to and including uh, Vladimir Putin. Thank you very much, uh, Dom. Francis
3: Durnley. there's been quite a few diplomatic updates from around the world. Can you take us through them?
2: Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, it's been quite an eventful 24 hours in the political space, especially with regards to China, which, of course, we touched on yesterday. So the EU's top diplomat has said that Western countries need to reduce their dependencies on China, but cannot put the country into one category with Russia. So this is the EU foreign policy chiefs, Josip Borrell, And indicative, I think, of a a general frame of mind within the European Union, but also what's quite interesting is these remarks were made on the sidelines to reporters. This isn't an official speech from him. Um, But I think, as I say, that this is indicative of of our understanding of of how many top officials are thinking about China at the moment. And I'll read his quote in full. It is clear that China is consolidating a new era of its external policy and internal also, that China is becoming much more assertive, much more on a self-reliant course. It is clear that we want to reduce our dependencies. We want to address our vulnerabilities to strengthen our resilience. But at the time being, many member states have a strong economic relationship with China. And I don't think we can put China and Russia on the same level. Now, when he's talking about those countries that have a strong economic relationship with China, we don't need to look too far to know which countries he's talking about, because, of course, we've already spoken this week about uh, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz making his inaugural visit to China this week. And indeed, many are wondering why Germany, that of course became so reliant on one authoritarian regime's energy supplies, Russia, is now tying its economy more deeply with another that's of course making overtures to take away sovereign territory by force in the form of Taiwan. So that's some of the criticism that's being levelled at Germany at the moment. And I think to try and explain the thinking behind the rationale as to why Germany is doing this on the one hand you can say well it's just for for its own economic uh, advancement I think that would be the selfish argument but I do think it's more nuanced than that because as I've spoken about in the past I see this in the context of finance now being seen as the West's central conduit for spreading its values, despite the fact, of course, that both Russia and China have been able to embrace capitalism whilst maintaining autocracy. There's an assumption, I think, that a global crisis now requires a global solution, one steered by finance rather than by values and by a sort of self-selected coalition of multinational corporations and and big governments and as i say money they think is the force that spreads peace around the world not morals that the more closely tied economies become together the less likely there is for there to be incentives for for conflict whether it be economic warfare or military ones but as i say there's there's a real i think naivety to that view as we've seen in the example of of ukraine and and uh and, and russia and indeed western reliance on on russian energy indeed the, the old argument the whole thesis behind that was that it would be impossible for russia to launch any kind of military operation because the sanctions would be so severe that the economic entanglement would be so severe that the west would uh, that they would never feel capable of withdrawing itself well we've seen the the, the folly of that, of that view, the naivety. Now, of course, in the long run, the sanctions, I think, will be very, very effective against Russia. But certainly in the short term, it has been able to stabilise its economy enough and maintain reliance on its energy enough to still be remaining afloat, despite the overtures the West has made to severing Russia off entirely. Now, just while staying on the subject of China, there has been an interesting remark that's been made by President Qi. Uh, as part of this conference with Olaf Scholz this week, he said that uh, in probably the most overt criticism I think we've heard from him so far of Putin, he's warned Putin not to resort to nuclear weapons and has called on on Scholz to push for peace talks. So he's essentially saying that, uh, and I'll quote directly from him, that the international community should jointly oppose the use of or threats of use of nuclear weapons. So the world should also advocate that when nuclear weapons cannot be used, a nuclear war cannot be waged in order to prevent a nuclear crisis. So as I say, I think it's very clear who the target of that is, the saber rattling coming from the Russians. And so the, no doubt there is tension, as we've talked about in the past, between Russia and China at present, and this is deemed as a, a good moment in which to, to vocalise that. So quite an interesting developments happening in the last 24 hours in this diplomatic financial space and ones that no doubt will be wanting to talk about in more detail next week. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Dom, can I come back to you? Um, you've got some notes, I know, on
3: Volodymyr Zelensky's remarks said yesterday uh, when he was talking about the infrastructure attacks on Ukraine by Russia. Uh, and also there's been an interesting update, I think, from the uh, UK MOD talking about, well, it's rather rather sort of innocuously named barrier troops that Russia may be employing. Can you talk to us about these two things?
4: Yes, yeah, of course. So firstly, this came out of Thursday night's last night's presidential Address the nightly address from from President Zelensky. He was talking about the the ongoing attacks on on Ukraine's infrastructure. I mean, there's a third, one third of Ukrainian power stations have been destroyed in the last month. I mean, this is, and these are not these are not directly related to the war. They're not providing power for you know, munitions factories. I mean, this is an attack on the civilians. How? How this has been allowed to go uncommented from the UN, I do not know. This is a, a war crime in front of us. I just just staggered, but that, that's, that's me. Um, so President Zelensky said that there are now four and a half million people temporarily without power. I mean, temporarily for, for, for now. I mean, that, this will be repeated. And he said that this was, quote, energy terrorism. And he said his quote was, he said, uh, they cannot beat Ukraine on the battlefield. So they tried to break our people this way. So yet more uh, this this continuing campaign against the infrastructure which is which is just at, aimed at the civilians i mean they 're not going anywhere on the front lines uh, if anything they 're going back i 'll talk about that in a moment they 're just going for the civilians here, uh, which is just ridiculous it 'll be really interesting to see if there are any comments that come out of the olaf Schultz and Xi Jinping um, summit or meeting on this regard i mean it, it's, it was interesting the the talk of the nuclear side there, as Francis was just saying, something of that gravitas you might expect there to be a comment, although you know we should never take anything for granted with, with china they 're very very closed about what they what they normally say in public, so I thought that was quite telling. Uh, hopefully there will also be a comment about these these attacks on the on the civilian infrastructure. The only other thing was that this this was a story. And this was this was uh, mentioned in today's briefing by uh, British defence intelligence. They're talking about Russia's uh, what they call barrier troops, sometimes referred to as blocking units. These are uh, troops and on a sort of second front line if you like so so one bound behind the the assaulting troops so one one bound being whatever the tactical situation is but you're you're not in the immediate contact battle but you're you're pretty close to it you know you're you're one you're one hill away you're a couple of buildings away you're just you're in a bit of dead ground to the rear so you're not directly participating in the fight but you are you are very very close and the suggestion is from from british intelligence that these these barrier troops are there to to, uh, threaten to to shoot their own retreating soldiers, should any should any choose to choose to turn and run, um, they have been used in previous conflicts by by Russia, most recently in in Syria. But we've seen them. I mean, this goes right back to um, uh, the Second World War. I mean, that movie Enemy at the Gates has has you see these these characters. Um, there's thought to have been they, they thought it's thought that they are given the shoot to kill order after a warning is given to any any retreating troops. It just speaks of. Well, I mean, a, a complete brutality, but it speaks of Russia's unwillingness to give any kind of ground. So, how that's going to go in relation to what what we've just been talking about in Hezon City is going to be very very interesting. But I mean, it's a any, any military that has to rely on the, on this type of force, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. I mean, we know that there are um, not white, not all over the place, but we know there are pockets of of desperate morale. Issues around the uh, around the Russian military um, at at every level, both throughout the command and you know troops, including the mobilized troops on the on the ground. Um, so we don't know if that how far that runs through the whole Russian military machine, but it's it's definitely there. There is a difference, of course, between elite troops and um, and recently mobilized troops, and the you know degree of training and the culture of individual units will will come into play here. Um, but we have seen instances of of whole units refusing refusing orders. Uh, it, it's, I mean, I'm not suggesting it's, it's extremely unlikely there'll be a, a kind of a, you know a mutiny, a general sort of downing of downing of arms. But um, it, it does speak of of huge morale problems running through the system. Such that you then have to rely on on these troops. Um, I mean, imagine going into combat knowing that there are other people there who who are more interested in pointing their rifle at you rather than the enemy. It's just absolutely shocking. But I think that is totemic of the, of the morale issue that we see in the Russian armed forces. Thanks, Tom. I mean, yeah, just to sort of put it into context, if you're in front of you, people
3: are probably better trained or at least as, as well trained as you. They've got better equipment. They've got higher morale. Behind you are people that will shoot you if you, if you try and retreat. I mean, I, I mean, don't you think that this will lead to more um, potentially more people surrendering? That, i mean that would seem like the, the the most logical thing to do in that scenario
4: um, yeah po- possibly i mean there there have been reports of of russian soldiers looking for looking for ways out you know looking to break legs or have some sort of some sort of injury that get that gets them out of there um, i mean interesting you you raise the question about about surrender because of the because of the way that the information is being controlled here journalists still not allowed um accredited journalists with ukraine still not allowed to go too close to the front i mean we just don't have hugely accurate information about those that are surrendering and equally the, the ukrainian casualties i mean we talk a lot about russian casualties because that's where the information is that we're getting um i mean we we don't we would if we could we would give you an idea of um of any casualties on the on ukraine's side which must be must be high um i mean they they admitted as such a few months ago it Was the only time they actually went on the record with with numbers and it, and it was it seemed reasonable and and fairly fairly high as you'd expect the battle the, the war has changed shape since then um and what we do know obviously is is ukraine's a much smaller um force in terms of number so they're going to be very very careful about where they employ their personnel for fear of of losing, of losing them, notwithstanding, they have a completely different moral attitude to risking people's lives. But yeah, I mean, if we could do, if we could do, we'd bring in more information about the actual numbers of Ukrainian losses, and equally about about those that would surrender. But it, I mean, it does it does nothing for wouldn't boost boost my morale to be in in that situation. Put it that way. Fair enough. Thank you very much, uh, Dom Francis. There's a. a th- a few more um, diplomatic
3: things to talk about, I think. And also you've been looking at the situation in Zaporizhia. Um, can we
2: start with the G20, which is uh, coming up? Sure. Thanks, David. Actually, just reflecting on what Don was saying there and, and you, you were talking about, as I've touched on in the past, I think this question of, of encouraging Russians to surrender is actually going to be really, really significant in, in the weeks and months ahead. I mean, it's already important now. But when you're, if you're looking at the history of warfare... The ability to persuade enemy soldiers to come to your side and believe that they are going to be treated better than they're going to be treated by their own side has proven profoundly significant in the annals of warfare. Most notably in the First World War, many, many Germans surrendered in 1918 because they realized that you know after a very very long and challenging war that it was going to be almost impossible for them to to win and they believed that unlike they did in the early years of the war that they actually were going to be treated better than uh, it, than the current conditions that they were going through. There was effective communications and dialogue that was open enough that people knew that if they surrendered, that they weren't going to be shot or worse. So I think this is going to be something that will be significant. And if Ukraine are able to continue that narrative that they did very early on in the war of saying, you know, if, if you surrender to us, we'll treat you well. You remember, of course, that there were even soldiers that were being driven to the border and handed over to their mothers. I mean, that was a huge... Coup, I think, from 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 the Ukraine's perspective, and it put a very sharp dividing line between them and and the Russians' handling of their prisons of war. So I just wanted to to touch on that and say I think this is something that perhaps the Ukrainians should be more sensitive to than they than they have been. Um, But yes, just turning to the to the G twenty, this is something that is of course meant to be taking place this month. And uh, there's been a little update on this. Putin has said that he's still not decided if he will attend the leaders summit, which uh, this year is taking place in Indonesia. Uh, Now, of course, uh, as you can imagine, that this is a very complicated and and difficult diplomatic thing because with the G20, it's not um, as as narrowly defined as other summits where it would be much easier to have Putin not attend or or booted off, as it were, as a consequence of what's happened in Ukraine. So no doubt there's a lot of um, uh, back-channel dialogue open at the moment on this. But of course, the most uh, pressing challenge will be that uh, Vladimir Zelensky has said that he will not take part in the G20 Summit if Putin attends. So, as I say, this is significant because it puts quite a lot of pressure on the G20 summit as well. Zelensky, of course, is now an international figure, and it won't be a good look if the G20 is shunned by Zelensky because Putin is in attendance. So, um, this is, as I say, dialogues that are no doubt going on in the background. But I think as well that it may be indicative of uh, a general shift in what the terms of peace are from the ukrainian perspective now which is in essence is the removal of putin from power i was very struck by the remarks of the ukrainian ambassador to the uk who said that it was still possible for russians to come out of the war as heroes if they remove putin from power and as i say i think that that you should see this in in the context of if we look back to early on in the war zelensky was was saying that it would be possible for there to be some kind of um uh, well, not deal as such, but dialogues to remain open with Russia with Putin there. But as we're seeing now, there's much more of as, as I say a, a line I think being drawn in the sand as to what kind of the terms were for for some sort of peace deal will be, and, and Putin being present there is becoming I think an increasingly challenging thing for the certainly the Western world to be able to countenance. I mean, certainly there's a strong case for for there to, for those to be the terms uh, the West sets for a future easing of sanctions, for instance. I see no way in which Putin can remain in office and for Russia to be restored to the international community. The West as well will be very sensitive to the mistakes made during the Gulf War with Saddam, when essentially a dictator was kept in power when he was on the ropes, only for that person to then be involved in the triggering another war many years later so as i say these are all things that will be being talked about at the moment but as i say I, I think it will be very very difficult particularly as the economic situation becomes increasingly challenging in russia for senior Russian political figures and generals to say that putin can remain in office and for there to be some kind of deal but of course that all depends on on western resilience and, and the usual caveats so uh as i say quite a lot happening in the g20, g20 space david hopefully that covers it Thank you very much, Francis. Dom,
3: um, one more big update from you. You were in a background briefing yesterday. Uh, what did you learn?
4: So, so this was a one of the regular background briefings with a Western official. I'm not going to tell you who, who it was. Um, they, they differ, these people, different positions. Um, you are just going to have to believe me or choose not to believe me when I say that the person giving the briefing who answered questions was very well placed and... Knew what they were talking about and was a, was a, a very sensible source. Now, you know, I'm asking you to take me com- completely on trust, and I always say, check all your information sources. Don't take everything. Yada yada yada. Well, this this is one of those times when you just pay your money, take your choice, kind of thing. You you either got to believe me or or not. Um, for for the record, I, I I mean, I know the identity of the person speaking to me. Um, he or she could have could have been lying, but I choose to, to think that they were not. I um. You know, I'm able to verify some of the information and I know the individual, got a re- relationship with them. So I, I, I tend to and the way obviously we, we handle information here is different to Moscow um, and elsewhere. So I, I, you know, I choose to believe it, um, but it's entirely up to you with those caveats in place. And I'm not going to read v- verbatim what he or she said because, you know, it's just just get a bit boring. But I mean, the first thing to talk about, we talked about nuclear weapons and and dirty bombs has been a huge Amount of of discussion about these uh, weapons in in the last couple of weeks Uh, and quite rightly, it's a very serious subject and a lot of people have been very concerned, which is why, um, having just said I'm not going to read it all out, I will tell you what what the person said and this was a direct quote. In terms of nuclear activity, I've seen nothing which gives me cause for concern. In fact, Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs has made another statement about the conditions under which nuclear weapons would be used, which downplay the risk, really, of them being used. I think that's deliberate messaging and generally an overall reduction in nuclear rhetoric. I'm not currently worried about that. Okay, now that's that's direct quote. That's the only direct quote you're going to get, really, because they don't like us doing that. But because the nuclear issue is so serious and so many people are very, very rightly concerned, I thought I'd give you the full unexpurgated quote there, which you can you can take all or not. But the, the individual, the Western official, was was really downplaying the nuclear risk at the moment. I mean, never say never, but that was that's the view uh, there. Okay, moving on. We talked about. Uh, we also asked about uh, about the Donbass and, and, and the battle elsewhere, and uh, we were told have a look at um, Savatave in in the in the sort of central area around around the Donbass. Uh, western officials were saying that that area has a potential to assume operational an operational level of significance I, i.e. if that town were to fall then that really is the last big logistic um, line for russia down in, into the donbass and therefore the, the, the suggestion i mean we know ukraine had been pushing against that town for some time the suggestion was that, that it's that it's coming under extreme pressure um it it, it leads right down into um, the luhansk into the annexed luhansk Oblast and therefore after those sham referendum, if that was to fall, it would be that would be very um, significant indeed. Um also Bakhmut. So Bakhmut down still in the still in the Donbass, fairly major city held by, by Ukraine, but but Russian forces are within a few kilometres to the east of it. And Russian forces in this regard, we think of the Wagner um or we've pretty much had it confirmed, it's the Wagner mercenary group bashing their head against Bakhmut. Been unsure why that is um because it they, you know they've been going nowhere apart from backwards albeit slowly but they've really not they haven't made any gains and they have been going they've been pushed back slowly um but why, why would they do it it's it's stopping you know and, f- and for all i dislike what wagner are and what they stand for uh, i mean they are some of the more experienced uh, troops um former russian troops but um you know, they they are they are more experienced they are better soldiers um, not that I'm paying them any compliment at all, but that's I think that's just a fact. So the fact that they were still there, bashing their head against back means they're not being used elsewhere, which was quite which was quite odd. So we asked the Western fish on that, and the answer is that that, that it's become a it's become totemic, if not for Russia as a whole, but then for Wagner, they feel it, it's sufficiently sufficiently important that they want to keep keep running at it, um, and yeah, you know, seemingly at very, for very little very little gain. Um, there's not been a huge shift. But the the line is moving east. So, in other words, in Ukraine's favour, and it looks like the other Russian forces in the area are trying to move a little bit closer to Donetsk city, to villages villages around there. So maybe they are, they are going to be accepting that Bakhmut is is just not not on the cards. They're going to try and try and shift shift uh, their focus elsewhere. Belarus. We were asking about the reports of Russian Russian soldiers up there and what they were what they were doing, and it looks as if the forces, the forces of Russian forces in Belarus are right in the centre of the country, nowhere near the borders at the moment, um, so no direct threat. But the the assessment was that um, that they are there just to fix ut- Ukrainian forces, i.e., I- they've got to have Ukraine has to have some troops in the area. And other and other military military forces, air forces, et etc, et etc., armor um, in case something were to happen, but it, it looks as if the, the Russian forces are few in number and quite quite geographically far from from the border right now, but um, that, so they 're only really there to, to fix they 're probably training I mean it might be where a lot of mobilized troops are going, but um, they 're not actually seemingly doing anything other than um, other than there to fix uh, uh, Ukrainian forces in the north. Now, in terms of re- recent, um, recent discussions about any internal dissent for Putin, and this will come into sharp focus as and when um, Hezon City is, is, it comes under increased pressure from Ukraine, uh, the view was that whereas the support for the objectives of the war remains pretty consistent uh, in Russia uh, and in Moscow in particular, the debate is about the means, and the pressure is coming from the right, as we know, the ultra nationalists, these these mill bloggers, and and the right the right wing of Russian society. And so far, all the all the the main criticisms have been directed uh, at the Ministry of Defence, and Putin's been very very clear that that's where it should go, and helped it along its way with um, you know sacking sacking the, uh, a few generals and, and what have you. So at the moment, he's fairly fairly secure. However, he has come under pressure. Uh, we know he wasn't keen on uh, coming up with a mobilisation decision because that, that says that this isn't a special military operation, this is a massive war that you're losing and also it brings the news right into Russian society so he, ha- he was forced to make that decision about mobilisation um, to pacify the right however the assessment from the Western official was that at, at this stage um, there is no serious threat to Putin's position um, we have talked about the likes of Goni Prigozhin who heads the Wagner group and Ramzan Kadarov, the Chechen leader who have been chopsing off and, and saying all sorts of things possibly with a power play, but, um, uh, in a way that any regular official would not be able to. The assessment there from Western officials was that these guys, yeah, fine. They, I mean, they are big figures, but they don't have direct influence on Putin and they are not in the inner circle, uh, in the Kremlin. So, uh, yeah we continue to listen listen to what they say uh, and assess what they say but they don't, they don't seem to be influencing putin directly and the only the, the final the final point i make is um the, the critical shortage of of ammunition um and that was that was a direct a direct quote the russians are critically short of munitions um bear in mind that Russia, across all the different ammunition types and equipment types and guns and ships and planes and blah 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 blah, Russia have got got all sorts of stuff they are going to keep an irreducible minimum for any future war against NATO so they're not going to be able to play with all the stuff in the locker and within that band of the things that they are able to employ, um, the suggestion was that they are critically low there so what we see is um, increased use of 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 weapons in other modes. So, for example, some some um, anti ship missiles have been used in the in the in the ground to ground role. Still goes bang at the end of it, but the guidance system and how it flies and what it's designed to do are not ideal. So, misemployment of munitions, which generally means that they don't go exactly where you want them to go, and hence you know more destruction for civilian areas and so on. Um, We think they are. The assessment was they are. There's a critical shortage of artillery ammunition. And again, we know the Russian way of war is that artillery leads everything else. And that this might be, um, as we think, another another reason why the, the Russian military advances have just gone nowhere for months now. Uh, Russia is sourcing dumb munitions, so just you know, gravity, gravity directed munitions uh, from North Korea, which shows the kind of the problems they've got. So it all builds up to this uh, or it confirms what we what we what we've been assessing for, for a long time, that they are. You know, very, very short of precision-guided munitions, and they're not able to do an, an awful lot other than try and source from outside the country, North Korea or the Shahid-136 kamikaze drones from Iran, which are low, slow, noisy, and, and the majority get shot down. Not downplaying that because some always get through and they cause death and destruction. But it does speak of, you know, Russia is critically short of ammunition. The morale is is not good, um, Especially in those in these mobilised forces, um, they're going nowhere on any front at the moment. They're going they're going backwards in in um, Hezon, preparing to withdraw across the river. They seem to be going backwards in the in the Donbass as well. Looks like uh, Savatave might might be the next uh, town to be taken there. Um, and uh, the most important, the one I started with. Uh, because people are so concerned about nuclear nuclear weapons and talk of the use of nuclear weapons and dirty bombs, it was very encouraging to hear that that is not, at the moment, um, a huge concern for, for Western officials. But I'll, I'll back out there. Thanks. Thanks very much for that, uh, Dom. Francis, there's just a couple of
3: updates, I think, something from the grain deal, and we need to talk about Zaporizhia. Uh, And then I'd quite like us to talk about Twitter because the news there is moving very fast and it it might seem like a a bit of a sort of inside baseball discussion, but I think it's an important one. And I think our our listeners who do tune in every day on spaces rather than the podcast would appreciate it.
2: Certainly, yes, absolutely. Well, before we come to that, uh, just on the grain deal, this has been obviously rumbling on this week, and it's been quite an interesting intervention from the Turkish President Erdogan, who said today that he has agreed with his counterpart Putin, who, of course, he helped broker this deal um, with the Western powers and Putin and Ukraine to get the grain out. Uh, he has; they've agreed that Russian grades sent under the Black Sea export deal should go to some African country for free and I'll read in quote in full what he said in my phone call with Putin let he said to me let's send this grain to countries such as Somalia and Sudan for free and we agreed so this was Erdogan saying this in a speech to business people in Istanbul today. Now, this of course comes on the back of Moscow resuming on Wednesday its participation in the UN and Turkey brokered grain agreement, which ended, I think, was about four days, wasn't it, of of non-cooperation that still saw exports continuing, but Nonetheless, there was some very big question marks about it. Now, why does this matter? Well, I think it's important to register this, that with all of this going on, Putin is still very much pitching a lot of his um, remarks for an international audience to anti-colonialist powers. Now, that's quoting from him directly, he keeps using that rhetoric. And as I've talked about in the past, Africa is one of the key places that Russia and China are now trying to win round through uh, these kind of deals, through food exports, through investment in business, etc. So I just think that this is very an interesting intervention that Putin clearly does not want there to be an interruption with these grain exports and for Russia to be able to be blamed for any severe food crises in Africa why? As I say, he wants to be pitching to that for, um, as a future power base. Also, he knows that it undermines Western influence in the region. But also, of course, he knows probably that the sanctions and everything else from the Western world will mean that new economic opportunities are going to have to be pursued by Russia. And clearly, he sees Africa at the heart of that. So rather than this being seen as he's pitching it here and as Erdogan is reporting as this being out of the goodness of his heart so that he wants to offer this grain for free to these African countries, we should see it in a power play context of him pitching here for uh, support from countries that have so so far not been outwardly condemnatory of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think this partly explains the reason why. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Just very quickly, what was the update on
3: Zaporizhia? Then we'll move on to Twitter.
2: Yes, just very briefly. So I talked about Zaporizhia at length yesterday. So if anyone who's really um, following that story particularly closely should should, um, listen to yesterday's episode where I talked about it in a little bit more detail. But just to provide a very brief update, the power station is now relying on emergency diesel generators to run its safety systems after the external power from the electric grid was again Cut off. So, as I said yesterday, this has been a concern because, of course, it's not able to rely purely on these uh, emergency generators forever. And yet, it is what is stabilizing the material there. We understand now. The regular on this podcast and our Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes was actually in Zaporizhia today and is going to be doing some writing on the subject for us over the coming days. So, I recommend that listeners go to our website and and, and check out what he's doing there and also his Twitter. And I imagine that we'll have him on the podcast next week to be able to talk a little bit more detail about what he's seen there on the ground. So that's just the latest on, on what's going on in Zaporizhia. Thank you very much, uh, Francis. So just to finish, just
3: before uh, we go to our final thoughts ahead of the weekend, I wanted to talk about some updates we're hearing from Twitter. And of course, if you're listening to this live, you're listening on Twitter. Uh, we've been doing this live on Twitter at 1pm uh, British time every day, since, basically since the beginning of the invasion. Um, Elon Musk now owns Twitter. He fired the rest of the board and runs it almost himself. We know that Twitter expected to cut half of the members of staff. So that's around 3,700 people many employees of Twitter in the UK woke up this morning unable to log into their own accounts. Uh, they're potentially waiting for an email later today to tell them that they've lost their jobs. We anticipate that this will cause uh, a huge number of lawsuits because that seems to go against British employment law. Um, but there's a couple of things here that are quite important that I wanted to pick up on. I'm taking quite a few of these notes from my old professor at, at journalism school, um, Adam Tinworth, so I'd recommend you follow him if you want to read some of the more in-depth thoughts around this. There's essentially several big things that we have to be wary of that are coming down the track. The first we've heard a little bit about, that is we know that Elon Musk wants to make major changes to verification. So that's essentially blue ticks, right? According to Musk, he sees the blue ticks as essentially a, a bit of a mark of vanity, right? I'm more important than you. I've got a blue tick. You don't. And there's there's some truth in that, in, in that critique. There's a lot more that they do, however, and it relates to disinformation. Essentially, what a blue tick does on Twitter is reassures the person um who's looking at their tweets looking at their looking at their feed that that person is who they say they are and they work where they say that they are and they post in good faith i mean that's not you know not always 100 percent true right but for the most part it does work when it comes to the war in ukraine we know that lots of people ourselves included have been trying to find reliable accurate information um from an area of the world that often many of us before before this invasion um uh, before the the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine, of course, we, we know it started in twenty fourteen. Um, we have to find our information somewhere, so we we were looking. We we still do. We look for accounts to follow. We try and assess how reliable they are, uh, whether we can trust them. They might be journalists at at, at newspaper Western newspapers. They might be Ukrainian journalists at Ukrainian journal um, newspapers websites as well. And actually, it's fair for us to say that so many of our uh, interviewees and, and our contacts and our uh, the stories we followed up on um, have come from Twitter. It's been people, you know, you, you might hear me at the end of every single broadcast saying, please do get in touch. And actually that's opened so many doors in terms of understanding different people's stories, getting in touch with people. So th- what I'm trying to say, this is slightly rambling, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is the site you are on, the site you are listening f- to us through is looks like it, it's going to change a huge amount in the next few weeks. And the worry... If, if you don't know, my, my my other job, as well as presenting this, is head of social media here at The Telegraph. And it's going to be a big worry, I think, it, looking to the very near future, that disinformation on Twitter. we know Twitter already does have a big problem with disinformation. But without the creation team, um, with these changes to verification, it's going to make it a lot harder for people outside um, to, to find out what's going on, to find the, the sources that they can trust. And uh, my my big worry is that uh, it sort of levels the playing fields again in the information space. We know throughout this war that Ukraine has has been winning the information war um, through memes, through the NAFO fellas. We've talked about them before, through all sorts of different things. But part of it is just getting the information out there and making sure that people can trust it. And that's, you know, if verification becomes a thing that you just pay for, I think the idea at the moment is it might be about eight dollars. What happens when lots of reliable journalists who work we trust, um, they, they, they don't renew, they, they don't pay that money, they lose their blue ticks. But actually lots of people um, who might not be real journalists, who might be um, malicious actors, do pay for it and they do get a blue tick and they start posting information. How is the audience supposed to know who to trust? So I, I'm, I, I'm personally very worried about the very near future when it comes to disinformation on Twitter. It's going to make it a lot harder for us to find the information we want. It's going to make it a lot harder for the audience to find the right people to follow, to find out what's really going on. Those are just some of my thoughts. Francis, I know you had a few yourself as well.
2: Yes, I mean, I echo your sentiments entirely, David. And and I know that for perhaps some people who are listening on the podcast who aren't on Twitter will be thinking, well, this is a bit strange. I mean, I'm, I'm not really on Twitter. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me too much. Perhaps people talk about Twitter far too much. And actually, in many ways, I would agree with you. I think Twitter has also done a lot of damage to our political discourse. Um, uh, close your ears, um, <laughs> David, as head of social media, forgive me. But um, I wanted to, well, well it, it matters. And it does matter for the simple reason that, Many, many influential people not only in journalism but also in politics most significantly follow Twitter very very closely what happens on Twitter shapes their attitudes often to the detriment but also sometimes for the good as well and I regular listeners will know that I used to work in the uh, houses of Parliament here in London for several years I worked for quite a senior MP there who was involved in uh, number 10 Downing Street and you know he and many many other MPs were were very on Twitter for their information, for what the big story of the day was. It was a huge source of their information. And so, as, as David's been describing, there may be a shift in, in, in reliable sources, in the algorithms that point reliable sources or, 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 or put, push them more than perhaps more malignant ones is, is severed, as that link is severed and things change. I think we can... It, uh, we are right to flag this as a, as a cause of of concern because it will not only influence um, journalism and our reporting on ukraine it will influence the political attitudes of of many many mps many many people in in uh, in congress in america no doubt i mean for right or wrong the agenda is now in many ways set by newspapers and by twitter working in tandem and i think that A recognition of the dangers of of a completely free Wild West Twitter should not be underestimated in the context of where big regimes have invested so much money in disinformation campaigns so uh, as i say it's very early days we don't yet know what is going to happen and i think elon musk as we've talked about at length in the past on his remarks about ukraine does tend to throw ideas out there to see what the response is and then reacts accordingly so we don't yet know what's going to happen but it does seem that there are going to be some quite profound shifts in one of the main central organs of democratic discourse in the western world and i think that is something that we're right to to draw attention to as potentially having consequences for for our reporting and for the war in Ukraine itself.
3: Absolutely. I mean to sum it up, the the dismantling of the creation team at Twitter, which is what we think is, is happening, um Means that the, the, there may not be anybody at the actual company who who will be taking misinformation off the platform, or, or or who will be who will be regulating it. We don't know. As as Francis said, you know, this is the, the caveat here is, of course, this is all happening today, and I've been in contact with Twitter to try and understand the changes, and it's fast moving, and might be this might be out of date by the time you listen to it this evening on Friday evening or over the weekend, but. This is happening on the eve of an incredibly important American election, where the issue of support for Ukraine does hang in the balance. It's it it, it is it is on the one hand just you know a, a relatively small social platform in, in some ways. It's a lot smaller than some of the others, but it does have huge influence. And what happens here, masses? Uh, it's also been the sort of like the, like the lifeblood of this podcast space. That this is where we've been doing this. And I honestly can't say whether <laughs> this is going. If we know whether we'll be still be able to do this live in a month's time, who know, who knows what the next who knows what the next um, move will be from, from Elon Musk. Um, so I just wanted to flag that as something that we're we're looking at with some concern about the future. Uh, and also because, listeners, if you're listening live, this, this will really matter for you and be very, very important. So thank you for, for, for listening to us on that. Dom Nichols, very quickly, uh, you've been listening to me and Francis on this, just wondered if you had anything to add to that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, when, it's, when I've seen the news this morning, initially I thought, I mean, as you've just mentioned, Elon Musk likes... Throwing all these ideas out there, he'd be, he'd be delighted with discussing these. He loves having his name out there, which might be what it's all about. Um, he's a brand as well as a businessman, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking, well, maybe he's just flying a kite here to see what the reaction is and and, uh, and change it. And and I also then thought, well, if if this makes people think more about how they receive their information and who they trust and check the sources, then then yeah, maybe there might be some there might be some good in it. And then I sort of caught myself and thought, actually, you know, the people that are going to think like that, that that do question everything that they that they hear and see and, and read and so on, they, you know, they're doing that anyway. They don't they don't need this. So I have to say I've been sort of flick flacking around uh, around this. Morning and I'm and I'm I'm struggling to see the positives, I have to say. It is a bit of a cesspit, Twitter. It can be I mean cracky, slide into my DMs if if you want to have a look at some of the some of the messages that that we all get. Um and you've got to you've just sort of gotta you know bluff that out, really, tough it out. Um so it can be horrific. Anything that they can do to clean up this um clean up the town square would be would be good. I don't necessarily think this is in the right direction. I thought it was interesting that, that Elon Musk said that he was not going to allow Donald Trump back on Twitter until after the midterms, which was, you know, was obviously a very specific event, a very specific date, but but means something. In fact, if there's time, Francis, I'd be really interested in your view, your view on that, and obviously our our friends and colleagues in the US, anybody who wants to, or well, anywhere, quite frankly, anyone has a, has an opinion on this. Why do you think he? Why do you think he did that, and will it have any effect? Well,
2: on the specific Trump issue, I think that actually, rather than that being something that's Trump specific, I think it's because Musk has basically said that he's trying to decide what the process is going to be for allowing senior figures who've been taken off twitter to return i think that's that it's more a question of the time scale as opposed to a specific attempt to silence trump before the midterms or or whatever but i think from what elon musk has said we can expect that donald trump will return to twitter and many other um people who may well have been uh, been removed and i know that's a very um, contentious discussion point i my own personal view is i do think it is ridiculous for a former president of the united states to not be on twitter um but that's by the by um when you have you know situations of of, of where you know the russian embassy is still able to put out its own uh, disinformation um but anyway as i say that's a separate point but um Just one other thing to flag is that we're talking about journalism and Twitter and newspapers in the same sentence, but there is actually a lot of differences. When you buy a newspaper, and hopefully you buy the Telegraph if you're here in the UK, this is something that we have regulators. We have standards. All of us as journalists have to go through lots and lots of hoops in order to be validated as journalists. Lots of things we have to subscribe to, to sign, to be trained to do, so that when you hear us report on things, you can, in theory, trust us more. Now, this has been a very bad few years for journalism, I would say, in many ways. Um, You know, we've had a lot of instances where experts have been criticised for their analysis and, indeed, I think journalism has often not um, covered itself in glory. But... Nonetheless, this idea that, 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 that journalism is itself a rotten profession, I think, is deeply, deeply unfair. Now, contrast that with Twitter and this idea that Musk is pushing of self-regulation being the way forward. Well, what that really means is opening up the floodgates for people who haven't done any of that and who could just put anything and post anything. And if they are have enough people who are following them... That that will be enough to, in, in essence, validate that message because it will be being reported and shared. And in a sense, it getting enough upticks, enough likes, whatever, will be enough to validate that piece of information, not the blue tick and not the source. So, as I say, you could say that's already happening, but the idea of that being something that should be being encouraged actively, I think it should be a cause for concern. And for all of the criticisms and critiques of journalism and journalists in recent years, I think it's worth underpinning the fact that there is a profound difference between the way that we operate and the way that that Twitter now is thinking or leaning in that direction to. And that is something that we should be very cautious of, I think. Thanks, Francis. Just very quickly, I I would say, you know, there is a... There is a future, a very
3: near future, which which could happen in which a majority or at least quite a lot of journalists from across the world leave or they, they, they either leave or they lose their blue tick. Uh, they, so they lose that mark of, you know, we can trust that this person is who they are and what they say, you know, they they stand by. Um they, there's a mass exodus of these people, you know, many, many of us included, because you know who knows if who knows if newspapers will will pay to have all of their journalists keep their blue sticks. You know, that's another discussion, and that space is filled by lots of people sponsored by governments, co- companies, whoever. To get their blue ticks and the, and and to start, as you said, Francis, to start to control the narrative, like that, that that's a possible future in the next few weeks from from, from what's happened. So, yes, to sum up, pretty concerned, and we'll try and give you updates and, and apologies for the slightly inside baseball ending of this space, but we thought it was important to mention because, as Francis said, it, it might be a small site, but it holds a huge amount of of influence. Um, Dom and Francis, can I just ask you for your final thoughts going into the weekend?
4: Yeah, my final thought would be I'm looking at uh, looking at Hezon, looking at what's happening to the city there, um, not only the, the anticipated imminence of Ukraine taking that city, but also what what does it mean that Russia is putting such effort into clearing civilians out of there? I mean, it's not it's not normal for them to Care about about civilians as they are you know, in, in the battlefield. They like to use them. I'm trying to work out how they would use civilians moving moving away. I'm thinking maybe it's just cover for their withdrawal if they are if they're going over the. Um going over what's left of the bridges or any of the pontoon bridges that there are, then you can get troops out that way. Um, I also wonder if this, is, if this is supposed to ramp up the rhetoric that, oh, oh, my God, if they're going to get the civilians out of there, they're going to blow the dam up the river. Um, uh, more likely, it's that they are digging in on the south side, on the left bank, the south side of the river, and they having seen what, um, what, they, what the winter is going to hold and how long they want to be there, it's quite handy to have ready-made um, accommodation uh, for for your troops you could just just move pe- move move troops in less likely to have disgruntled mobilized troops there and so on and so forth if you've got a lot of empty houses to move into so i think th- i don't think it's through the goodness of their heart they're getting civilians out of the way um i think there's more to it. it's probably the accommodation issue and a bit of the withdrawal i don't think the dam is is um is any in any imminent danger but um but yeah let's keep keep an eye on what happens to the city thanks tom and francis Turnley. would you like the very final thought
2: Thanks, David. Well, I just wanted to contrast two stories, really, one of which Dom alluded to earlier on. So uh, Russia's ex-president, Dmitry Medvedev, of course, we've talked about in the podcast many times. He's railed against the thousands of his countrymen who fled Russia after troops were sent to Ukraine. He's denounced them as, quote, cowardly traitors. This is in a social media post on Russian Unity Day, quote, and I'll carry on. We were abandoned by some frightened partners. Who cares about them? Cowardly traitors and greedy defectors fled to faraway lands. Let their bones rot in a foreign place. Very, very uh, strong remarks indeed. But as I say, just contrast that with the story that Don was talking about earlier, that Russia is threatening to shoot deserters as morale plummets. Is it any wonder that people are fleeing the country when they face that kind of... um, reality if they are potentially going to be sent to the front line if they're a young person or would you even want to be in a country that mandates that kind of activity i think it speaks volumes as to the state of russia at the moment and so i just wanted to end the week on that contrasting pair of stories yesterday i spoke to eugene
3: slavny in a former life he was a journalist, and media professional. After Russia's full-scale invasion in February, he joined the armed forces to fight for his country. I was interested to hear about his experience and how his life had changed. This is our conversation. Good, good, good. How's the electricity situation for you?
5: Yeah, well, it's insane lately because uh, you need to travel. Like yesterday, I traveled like six times in different parts of the city so wow. I can find electricity and internet because all the antennas with the internet. They also have like uh, the battery, when there's no electricity, it works for like an hour or two. And afterwards you don't even have internet on your phone. So you always need to travel around uh, in search of electricity and internet. It's better today, is it? Or are you worried about the future? A bit worried about the future because uh, we're trying to get used to it, but you know, we have this schedule and uh, usually it's like in the schedule, so you can plan like uh, now I'm in that part, afterwards I'm moving to other parts, and that's how you catch the electricity and uh, the internet. But obviously if the rocket comes and they break something, it takes some time to fix it.
3: So Eugene, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and and tell us about yourself before the war? Because I think that's an interesting thing to set up and understand you as you. And then we can talk a little bit about what happened when the fighting broke out, when the invasion started and how you ended up joining the army.
5: So back to 2014, I was a journalist and uh, when the the war in Donbass started, I used to be the special correspondent, like the war journalist who travels to the East because I was young and idealist. And I thought that maybe there is no Russians, maybe this is Ukrainian citizens. But I traveled there and I was uh, in some time they were like just sending away all the Ukrainian journalists, but I was working for the new channel. So they didn't knew it's Ukrainian and they allowed me to stay. So I was the first Ukrainian journalist who actually took an interview from the Russian soldier who said that he just went on vacation here. Wow. And yeah, and obviously when you're in Luhansk, I was in Luhansk region, um, you started to see, because I wasn't sure, like uh, it was like part of my journalist investigation. Is there any Russians? But when you come here, you can see the Russian pack of cigarettes, the people speaking fluent Russian with Russian accent, and you start to understand that yeah maybe there's there are some Russians here, and obviously at some point they understood that I'm Ukrainian journalist. I was uh, in the basement, uh, interrogated, and so on. And oh wow, I was journalist for a long time, but afterwards I switched to like uh, video production, like advertisement shooting, advertisement, and so on. Actually, we shot uh, this Lacoste advertisement, which got four or five con lines last year. So actually Ukraine was a huge in video production industry, plenty of cool directors like Megaforce or even Netflix. A lot of people shot here because uh, we have this uh, really high expertise for the people working in uh, video production, like lighters, uh, cameramen, camera crews, grips. And uh, it's nice... I suppose it's much cheaper than the uh, West, mm. but the level is still really high because people are uh, working a lot and uh, a lot of really nice uh, works were done here. So
3: you were a journalist
5: in the East, you went into video
3: production. So what happened in February? Where were you and what did you do next?
5: I was working in uh, advertisement as a producer, federal agency and like one of the best creative agencies in uh, the country. Really nice life of modern creative uh, in the nice neighborhood. I just bought uh, a new flat and uh, started uh, refurbishing my apartment. I have a dog and a girlfriend. And uh, I was like super sure that uh, the war wouldn't start because uh, on 23rd of February, I gave the nice sum of money to my designer for the apartment because I was sure that the war will not outbreak. And on the 24th I woke up, obviously all the explosions and uh, I understood that they're like coming, it's total war, they're coming from from all over the place, like from the north and obviously like I'm uh, the proud Kievan uh, so I need to protect my city because uh, as I said I was working with in the east I understand what they do to Donetsk actually was also a really nice modern city with nice roads, plenty of cafes, like I don't know cinemas, shopping malls, but also a nice street culture, educated people, high level of uh, industrial pipes, mining. Like mm-hmm. uh, it was a huge city with huge population, a lot of money, a lot of investments. So obviously, when uh, they came from the Chernobyl, I understood that if they occupy Kiev, so it's like. My whole life is going to be destroyed. And also, like, Kiev is super free city. A lot of techno parties, bars, DJs, designers. I mean, like, uh, street culture and uh, LGBTQ plus people not hiding. And uh, obviously, Russia is, like, everything that I hate about the government as it can be. So they will bring everything, like, police, strict laws, So, yeah, I thought that uh, if in 2014 I was a journalist, now it's time for me, as a grown man, to take arms to protect my way of life, you know. So you joined the army. What did you join exactly, and what was your
3: experience like training and being with other people in the unit? Can you tell us a little bit about the life you
5: joined? Yeah, so uh, just before the war, I shot an advertisement for Territorial Defense Forces of Ukraine. So from start, it was... It's a nice idea uh, It's to create the reserve of the people who train twice a month. And uh, if the war starts, people already know how to act in units. They know where the weapons, they know their neighborhood, know their city. So they just go take the arms and start to the city. But uh, the problem is that uh, the territorial defense forces were created for like two months before the war. So they weren't organized but I didn't want to join an actual army with all the strict laws. So I joined territorial defense. And we thought it's like we just like we thought that war is going to be like one month max. You know, they try to occupy Kiev. They can't. They go back. Uh, it's peace again. So uh, me and friend of mine, we joined the territorial defense forces. And uh, actually, it was really scary time because... Everyone fled from the city, and uh, only army in the city. And uh, it's like a huge amount of people you don't know with different education, mm. different backgrounds, with different backgrounds. Yes, so we've gotten the point which we were defending, and we created the, some protection and went on shooting range so we can we know how to shoot. I was there rocket launcher, like RPG-7. So I was commander of this small unit. Inside my unit, I was commanding the RPG team. So when uh, the Kiev was protected, uh, we were part of counteroffensive to the north, to the Chernobyl region, us and 72nd Brigade. So they're insane. They're like actual army with artillery, uh, tanks, uh, and we were light infantry who support them. So, yeah, that's basically it. We went up north uh, with some fightings with the Russians, and uh, I was uh, acting like uh, like a sergeant, mm. but actually I'm an officer. So when uh, we unoccupied the north of Kiev, the army sent me back to Kiev so I can be an acting officer.
3: So you were fighting alongside the regular army in the north. You said you sort of deoccupied some regions. Were you able to see the reaction of local people to your forces? What was that like?
5: Man, it's like a movie, you know, so we were like really because we were from Kiev and a lot of volunteer help a lot of uh, like equipment from US and Europe. So it's like Russians, they were dressed up like tramps, you know, with uh, all the Gorka and uh, Russian uniform and so on. And we were like, was super equipped with nice guns uh, and uh, like feeling the victory coming, you know, because uh, we were counter-offensing. So they were flooding and we were just like, you, you go straight north and uh, you see like destroyed Russian vehicles. You can see some closing, obviously some dead people. So, yeah. But uh, when we were entering any village or small city, like people were, going out with uh, food, with bread, with uh, flowers, like, and saying, wow, you you look so cool. You're so much better than those Russians. But yeah, like the first, I suppose, like three weeks in this region. So people were like feeding us all the time, like women coming "Oh, Do you want something? Maybe you want some tea. Maybe you want some sandwiches. Uh, So yeah, uh, it was a huge support. And we were, like felt that we were doing something, something good, you know.
3: I don't want to dwell on it too much, but could you talk to us a little bit about the action that you saw? What exactly were you doing and what thoughts were going through your mind when you found yourself in the advance in in the fighting?
5: Well, uh, it's really scary in a way. Like the night before, you know that there might be combat, it's always super scary because it's also a bit cold and you're not sleeping properly. And uh, so it's for me, obviously, it's super stressful because uh, I'm not an army man before the war and uh, never was in a actual combat. So, yeah, mostly it's just uh, trying to sleep. And for me, it was really hard. But during the actions, it's most of the time, Everyone is super concentrated and fast, fast thinking, fast doing. So, the biggest thing is uh, not to have any panic during the combat. Mm. Yeah, but mostly as a light infantry, we're not fighting so much because actually, like uh, it's special forces and uh, people from uh, like regular army, like tanks or uh, combat machines, they're coming up front and uh, you're just cleaning you know, the best. So sometimes in the forest you can find defense point of Russians, but most of the time they already surrendered or they're dead.
3: You mentioned that you were um, an RPG-7 operator. Did you ever use it?
5: Yes. I suppose like five times I shot it. Once I shot it uh, against the enemy vehicle. But uh, I'm not sure if I succeed, you know, because it's like, obviously, like, not only me, there are plenty of people, it's a huge crowd, Mm -hmm. and a lot of chaos going on, and you just react.
3: Something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is the Ukrainian army's approach to innovation and using new technology, specifically things like drones and expanding the, I think you could call it the art of drone warfare. Is this something that you saw a lot of in the army that people were trying to learn as much as as possible and adapting tools and uh, things that they had to uh, give them an advantage?
5: Yes. So at that point in May, I suppose, it only started. So people wasn't using so much uh, like now we have this uh, usual commercial drones, but with grenades on attached to them. And you can see like the people throwing back to May, uh, there wasn't so much of it. So it's mostly reconnaissance you use a drone for. I also have a drone, and yeah, volunteers helped a lot. They provided plenty of drones which we used just to. Fly around and understand: Is there an enemy or not? And also transferring the info to the regular army, and they're using er- artillery to destroy it. Obviously, you mentioned the stress and
3: the pressure that soldiers and yourself are under. So, I was wondering: How do you keep your spirits up? You know, other the, do you tell jokes in the units, um, sing songs? What What are the ways the Ukrainians sort of keep their spirits up?
5: I don't know. I don't think we sing a lot of songs. Maybe some people sing. We weren't singing so much. But mostly, you know, it's like you're protecting your own land and you're protecting not only like your country, somewhere in the east. For me, it was like my own region and my hometown. So that's enough to keep my spirits high because I know if I fall and my unit fall, the Russians will come inside the city. There's my mother, there's my younger brother, my dog. And uh, I need to protect them. And uh, that's mostly like for everyone, this was the biggest motivation. So the spirits are always high. And in Soviet army, you have this thing called uh, dead of Shina, when the people are in service for a long time and the newcomers come and they make them do stupid things, you know, like bullying, in, but on the army level. And uh, in modern Ukrainian army, you didn't have it, like mostly. Obviously, sometimes I suppose it happens, but in our unit, nothing like this. So everyone was helping out. If someone was stressed or was fearing, everyone said, it's going to be good. We shall fight for our land. So because it's like, uh, you know, it's not only young people in the army, but also like people like me. I'm 30 years old and there are also men like 40 years old. And uh, when you're old enough and you're fighting for your land that's just enough to keep your spirits high. And if someone is younger and he's afraid, you're just saying to him, don't be afraid, uh, we shall win. What does the near future for you look like? Do you roughly know where you
3: might be or what you might be doing?
5: I suppose now I'm press officer of the one of the army departments. So obviously I'm in headquarters and for me, it's more civil and I'm still in Kiev. But uh, the biggest problem now is that Russians destroying civil infrastructure. And uh, there's problems with electricity, with internet, sometimes with water. And they're doing it only because they can't win it on the battlefield. So they're trying to use terror to uh, lower the spirits of the civil. But as I'm in Kiev, I'm speaking with a lot of people and... Everyone is adjusting. So it's awful and it's not humane. And it's so, you know, medieval tactics because like for the person who's working, I don't know, in creative agency or in IT industry, it's like you're used to a pretty high level of comfort and the Russians are trying to take it away. But people adjusting when there's no electricity, they go to the coffee shop So you have this schedule and nobody thinks about we should surrender because Russians destroying electricity. And for the army, for us, everything goes well on the battlefield because they're like really using. If you're thinking about the war back to start of summer, it was like one Ukrainian shell and against we received around 20 Russian shells. Now they're trying to whine that, like, we don't have enough shells. Ukrainians are destroying us and we can't uh, provide proper counter-battery fire. That's a good point. You know, they're losing on the battlefield. So they're trying to use resources uh, like the grain, uh, the oil, the gas, like to push the EU for the uh, peace. And also they're trying to scare the civil population in Kiev and big cities uh, but also, I, I don't think uh, this will work, because for for us, I think like in the in in modern war, you have this saying that uh, you can't win the war, because what what is winning in the modern war? It's like uh, you can't destroy the whole country or destroy the whole people. So for us, a war and uh, the victory is clear. It's like getting back our land. For Russians, I I don't know w- what will they achieve. Like what what is the victory for them?
3: What, looking back on your time defending your country, is there anything you'd really want our listeners, many of whom are in the US, in the UK, we've got lots of Australian listeners as well, what would you want them to understand about your experiences and the experiences of your comrades and your countrymen?
5: I suppose the biggest thing, because I was working a lot in Brussels and I was living in Canada also, so it's like uh, in a way I'm more Western than uh, Eastern and Slavic. And uh, the the biggest thing is like, it's the war of modernity and archaism. So the the Russians, they're just trying to destroy our way of living, you know, it's like they're against freedom, they're against democracy. And we need all to understand that if Ukraine loses this war, I don't think Russians will stop because they're already we all the level of aggression of the country really high. So I suppose to keep the country stable, they will also attack Poland. And this only leads to further escalation. So actually, I want the peace. It's like the biggest thing I want. But I know that if we make the peace now, we all lose in like five years or 10 years because Russia, China, Iran, even Turkey with Erdogan, like all the authoritarian countries, they're now trying to, they're pushing the limits, you know, they're always testing what else they can do, and uh, the civilized world will just eat this pill.
3: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire
1: Hubble.